A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by Beis Medrash Mevakshe MS, in honor of their current fundraising campaign, campaign which is taking place Today, Monday, August 30th, and is continuing uh, tomorrow. And Mavakshi um, Emes, which is founded and led by Rabbi Chaim Eisenstein from the Ritz Israel Kail, the Gross Kail, is a growing kehila located in the Mishkafayim neighborhood in Ramapi Chemesh. If you'd like to have a part in building a serious Makam Taira and Fila in Eretz Yisrael, you can join this campaign at cmatch.me slash bmme. I'll obviously uh, post the link to the campaign in the uh, text notes, and I'll uh, send it out on the Jewish History Sound by social media as well, so you can just click on the link. I happen to have a personal affiliation with the shul. It's not in my neighborhood, but it's not far away. And it is, I don't know how many shuls like this have this distinction but this is this shul. I happen to know for a fact the majority of the membership are Jewish History Soundbites listeners. So that makes it for that alone, it's worth uh, donating to the campaign. I obviously have already made my contribution to the campaign, and I encourage anyone else who'd like to have a part in it to do so as well. It's a very nice place, and they even invite me to lecture several times a year. So that's always fun. And uh, and it's it's really great to be at least a little bit part of that uh, shul and to you know do my thing to uh, assist with this great campaign and and it'll be great for me because next time they invite me to lecture I'll be in a bigger shul it'll, it'll make me feel better also because I'll have like a you know bigger building and a bigger shul with with the success of this campaign so um, that's um, that's that so now we're going to go to the topic at hand which is, I'm going to give an overview of the five aliyot, the five waves of immigration, Jewish immigration, to what was, uh, what was then Palestine, um, Ottoman Turkish Palestine, later British Mandatory Palestine, in the closing decades of the 19th century and in the early decades of the 20th century. There was what is known in historiography as five waves of immigration, the five aliyot, and the question is, why these five and what's unique about them? In fact, many historians today level criticism on calling uh, the one in 1881 the first Aliyah and 
the one in the 1930s as the fifth, as if that this was some sort of unique thing and anything before is irrelevant and anything afterwards is all irrelevant. The biggest issue is with calling the first Aliyah of the 1880s the first one because this is seemingly negating any uh, Jewish immigration which took place prior to that. And uh, it's a big question today among historians what constitutes the first. In fact, Ben-Gurion himself, when he discussed the Jewish immigration uh, to Palestine, he uh, pre-state, in other words, the land of Israel. Um, he he uh, he mentioned the old Yishuv and their contribution, the students of the Vilna Gain and the Aliyah of the Hasidim, and he said they were pioneers in Aliyah. Uh, so he he himself uh, predated the first Aliyah before the first Aliyah. Um, so perhaps um, you know it, it, there's a bit of a need of some historical revisionism there. Uh, but in any event. Uh, there, there were definitely aliyahs before the first aliyah. And first of all, in the pre-modern era and throughout uh, Jewish history, there's always have been individuals and occasionally, quite rarely, but occasionally there have been even groups, small groups, that have decided to make aliyah, to, to immigrate uh, to... Uh, um, to immigrate to... Uh, the word aliyah is definitely a either religious or ideological term, so, you know, to use a more neutral term, we can say immigration. Um, but um, Aliyah is a, an accepted term to be used, especially in a historical sense. It's used less and less in a contemporary sense, but that's for another discussion. And um, and uh, the, in the pre-modern era, it did exist. Uh, there were times that it did. I don't want to elaborate on that now. If we go jump all the way to the modern era, the first major Jewish immigration is following the Spanish expulsion, the, the Alhambra decree, the, the expulsion of all non-Catholics from Spain and later from Portugal, so it's from the Iberian Peninsula, and many of those Sephardic Jews come to the, many, there is a significant amount, that come to the land of Israel and settle in the, primarily in the holy cities, and in, Jer in Jerusalem, and Tzfas, and Hebron, um, and so on. Then we have in the 18th century, the Aliyah of the Hasidim in 1777, from Menachem Mendel of Etebsk, in the Bavrom Kalisker, they lead a group of 300 Hasidim, and there's a slow and steady immigration of Hasidic Jews from Ukraine and White Russia, Ryzen, and other places, Galicia, over the coming century. And this is followed several decades later by the Aliyah of the students of the Vilna Gain, the Prushim, in the early 1800s, from, from approximately 1808 to 1816, a group of students of the Vilna Gain and some of their followers, and also trickles continued throughout the 19th century, and they form the nucleus of the old Yishuv. First, there's the Sephardic old Yishuv, which I mentioned from the Spanish expulsion and their descendants, and then later the Ashkenazi old Yishuv, which again starts in Svas and Tveria, and later on makes it to Yerushalayim as well. That is the, is the, all that immigration is before even the first Aliyah. So we come now to what's known, either incorrectly or correctly, as the first Aliyah, but that's how it's referred to, whether we like it or not. And it, that goes from 1882 to 1903. It's a 30-year uh, wave. Uh, so just to have, you know, if we, if we take a screenshot of the land of Israel, of what's then known as the Ottoman Empire's colony of Palestine, there's, at this time, before the first Aliyah, there's about 25,000 Jews living in the land of Israel, primarily in the old Yishuv, in the old cities, um, you know, beneficiaries of the Chalukah system, especially among Ashkenazi Jews, 
and um, and that's that's the entire population, Jewish population, of the land of Israel, twenty five thousand. And what happens is now is there's the great emigration of Jews from Eastern Europe. That's what happens, and it's primarily not to the land of Israel. Um, only about thirty thousand come to Ottoman Palestine during this time. During those three decades, about a million and a half Jews go to other places in the world, primarily over 90% to the United States. And um, in the, the, um, the so, so a trickle is coming to, to the land of Israel, uh, so, you know, about 30,000 out of a million and a half. By the way, the Jewish immigration is also only a small story and a, the larger story of general migration during the 19th century, when there's tens of millions of people, of human beings, migrating from place to place is Chinese and Italians and Irish and German and people all over the world. And many of them are literally tens of millions of them are immigrating to the United States. And again, the Jews are just one part of that story. And one small part of the Jewish story, a very tiny small part of the Jewish story is this immigration to Palestine. So, and also again, another factor, which is also very not talked about is the story of all five Aliyot, especially the earlier ones, is how short-term it was for many of them, uh, sometimes even a significant percentage. Uh, the numbers of the immigration, Jewish immigration to the land of Israel don't tell the full story because many either returned to their home of origin, to their place of origin, or moved onwards to the United States and other places because it wasn't feasible for them economically to, uh, to adapt in Palestine and they were not able to stay and, and, and acclimate acclimate themselves to the uh, the social uh, uh, framework and, 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 uh, and uh, um, to, to, to establish themselves economically there so they they many of them left so even even though even even if there was this trickle of immigration not all of it was permanent there was many reasons for general Jewish immigration uh, to from Eastern Europe mainly economic and I think I've discussed it on this on other episodes um, grinding poverty, large, tremendous growth demographically of the Jews in Eastern Europe, of the general European population, but especially of the Jewish population. And there is also the 1881, the, the pogroms in the southern, uh, in Ukraine, and the May laws, and the, then, then the uh, expulsion of the Jews of Moscow in 1891, and all kinds of other things that it was becoming uh, somewhat impossible to live under the Russian czars. And also in Romania, there was anti-Jewish legislation. And also there was the army draft and economic uh, challenges in Austro-Hungarian Galicia. And many left there as well. So from those three places, the Russian Empire, um, uh, Austro-Hungarian Galicia, and Romania, the Kingdom of Romania, there's general Jewish uh, emigration from those places. And some of them end up in the land of Israel. There's the rise of the Chayvevei, Zion movement, the Lovers of Zion movement. There's Leo Leon Pinsker's, excuse me, uh, a book that he publishes, Auto Emancipation, which is the rise of Jewish nationalism, which causes them to say we're not going to find the solution in Europe. Uh, Haskalah is not the answer. There's an abandonment of the ideals of Haskalah, of integration into the non-Jewish population, because anti-Semitism in Europe does not disappear, despite the fact that there's uh, that there's emancipation. And in Eastern Europe, the, under, the, under the Tsar, it doesn't seem like emancipation is ever going to come, is ever going to materialize. And in 1884, there's the Katowice Conference of the Chayvavetsian movement. 
and they are trying to promote Aliyah and to establish agricultural colonies. Most of the first Aliyah is religious Jews. It's a fascinating uh, aspect of the story. The overwhelming majority of the first Aliyah were religious Jews from Eastern Europe, and they were preceded by an unspoken about Aliyah. In other words, the ones who beat them to it, the ones who beat the Russian Jews and the Galician Jews in the first Aliyah, was Jews from Teman, from Yemen, the Yemen Aliyah. It was called the Eleb Tamar Aliyah. Uh, and, and the Temani Jews were really the first ones of the first Aliyah. Uh, several thousand of them. It wasn't an insignificant number at all. They immigrated primarily for religious reasons and messianic reasons, and they had a tough experience settling in the land of Israel. They had a a challenging relationship with the Sephardic uh, Old Yishuv establishment, who didn't accept them so well, and also the Ashkenazi Old Yishuv establishment, and uh, and they had uh, some difficulties in settling here and housing. Many of them settled in Kfar Shiloh, Silwan, right between the uh, Yerushalayim's old city and Har Hazesim. Um, and uh, and um, the first agricultural colonies are established by members of the first Aliyah, the Rothschild colonies, Baron Edmund de Rothschild of France, uh, Maurice uh, Hirsch, uh, Baron Hirsch uh, of the Jewish Colonization Association, also uh, was funding uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the, some of the colonies. By the way, if you've ever seen a picture of Baron Hirsch, he had one of history's great mustaches. Now, it's become a bit of an obsession, obsession of mine lately of historical great mustaches. I'd love to hear your thoughts on who had the greatest ones. Nietzsche definitely had a great mustache. I think Goose Gossage, even though he's only a little bit of history, he's more recent history, he's got one of the best ones there also. Um, so that's, that's another topic. Maybe we'll have an episode on, on great mustaches throughout history. Either way, one of the interesting smaller parts of the first Aliyah was the Bilu, uh, group who were uh, a more of more secular in nature. They call themselves Bilu, based on the pasuk Beit Yaakov lechu v'neilcha, uh, the house of Yaakov. In other words, the Jewish people. Let's go to to Zion. And it's interesting that at the same time, the old Yishuv, and even a bit earlier, the old Yishuv uh, built new neighborhoods in Yerushalayim, and they established the mother of the Moshavot, Petach Tikva, the original of the Moshavot of the new Yishuv, was established by members of the old Yishuv during the years and in the years immediately preceding the first Aliyah. Uh, the first Aliyah settlements were known as Moshavot, Rishon Letzion, Rosh Pina, Ekron, Zichron Yaakov, the agricultural school at Mikveh Yisrael, Dr. Hill Yaffe, Nes Tziona, others... And, uh, and definitely I'm going to get back to these Moshevot of the first Aliyah, hopefully very soon, because since the Shemitah year is about to commence, I hope to have several episodes about the history of, of Shemitah. And uh, we already have one sponsored, and we're going to start with that. But if you'd like to sponsor subsequent episodes of Shemitah, which is going to involve a lot of this history, you can be in touch with me about that. The Ottoman Turkish government put limitations on Jewish immigration to Palestine as the empire was suspicious of nationalism, which is quite natural. Uh, the Carmel Winery uh, is established during the first Aliyah. And let's move on to some of the other Aliyah, uh, Aliyot, Aliyahs. Uh, the second Aliyah was uh, a decade, the decade preceding World War I, 1904 to 1914. That is known to history as a much more ideological Aliyah. Uh, the first. This is the first time that it's not just the old Chovavei Tzion movement. Now it's political Zionism. It's the official Zionist movement, which had 
started in in 1897, and now it's, it's it has an impetus. It's it's uh, serving uh, Aliyah much more. This uh, this this uh, immig- wave of immigration is much more secular oriented. But there is is a big difference, and I want to point this out between the stereotype and the collective memory of the second Aliyah and the reality. The reality was that many of them were still religious Jews or at least religious-oriented, who immigrated for traditional reasons, in addition to the recent nationalist, the rise of nationalism slash Zionism. A significant percentage of the immigrants were children or elderly. So again, it doesn't fit the stereotype of young, uh, um, rebellious, uh, you know, uh, uh, members of the Second Aliyah Socialist. But a significant minority were young socialist, secular Zionists that came with a, a certain... Um, you know, revolt against society, and they were, they're going against anti-Semitism. They were, you know, rebelling against anti-Semitism. They're rebelling against the exile entirely, with the intention of creating a new man, a new world, negating the past. And that was their. Uh, that's what they set out to do. This was the peak of the great immigration to the United States in the decade prior to World War One, which was still unrestricted immigration to the United States. So, 1.3 million Jews immigrate to the U.S., almost all of them from Eastern Europe. Now, at the same time, the second Aliyah drew 35,000 to Ottoman Palestine. Um, so, you know, obviously, again, it's a tiny number compared to the amount of Jews who were migrating. And the reason was because the economic and social situation, there was political decline, neglect. Uh, this is as the Ottoman Empire is crumbling Um and therefore, there's, it's just a, uh, uh, almost like a blip on the screen as far as Jewish immigration at the time is concerned. And they come primarily from Russia and Eastern Europe, Russia, Galicia, though again, some from Tehran. They are still from Yemen and other origins in the Islamic world, Iraq and other places. Um, David Ben-Gurion and Yitzhak Ben-Svi, who are later to be famous uh, in the founding of the State of Israel, their uh, products of the Second Aliyah is also... Uh, the very interesting figure, one of the most fascinating figures of the labor movement, Aaron David Gordon, who was called the Admor HaChiloni, the secular uh, Rebbe. And uh, he was one of the fathers of labor Zionism. He had this long white beard, and he was like the patriarch of labor Zionism, a theorist and a, a fatherly figure, a very interesting fellow. Also a good story. About 35,000 came, like I mentioned, by the time World War I run, rolls around, about 85,000 Jews are living in the Yishuv. Uh, the thing that instigated the second Aliyah is Kishinev, the pogrom in Kishinev, which I spoke about in the Tishabov episode this year. The pogroms, the grinding economic poverty, were the primary motivating factors. The voting down of the Uganda plan. So the, the, uh, the idea, the ideal is to, to come only to the land of Israel. Also the death of Herzl. Um, in 1904, and the development of the socialist philosophy of the Moshe vote, there, these are all factors in uh, in uh, motivating the Aliyah, uh, the second Aliyah. Uh, the ideals of the second Aliyah were Jewish labor, socialism, working the land, they become the ideologies of the Yishuv. It was these young, very motivated, driven, secular, socialistic, uh, nationalistic youngsters who built the land pretty much with their bare hands. They came with a very strong sense of what they wanted to accomplish, and they went ahead and did so at great sacrifice. They laid the foundations of the new Moshevot, even the earliest kibbutzim, the Ganya, is in the first Aliyah, excuse me, in this second Aliyah. Much of the later of the what the state of Israel is built on these foundations, and they left a great legacy, and that's the basis of the collective memory of the Second Aliyah and the Zionist narrative, and until recent decades in the historiography as well. Still a debate among historians if the Second Aliyah was actually unique as a whole in this regard, 
or it is rather to be seen within the general context of Jewish immigration at the time, with similar trends, with the ideological uh, factor being a very rather minor phenomenon and rather insignificant in the larger picture of the Jewish and world population at the time. So that's a debate. Or do we just see it in the context of the larger Jewish immigration, or is it actually unique in the uh, in the in, in this ideological sense? Um, so the um, there's also the beginning of Jewish self-defense. There's also the beginning of the friction with the religious establishment, with the old Yishuv, uh, and the establishment of the first Aliyah, which was primarily religious in nature. It was during the second Aliyah that the famous rabbinic tour of Rabbi Chaim Zunnenfeld and Rav Kook took place, what was known as the Masah HaMoshavot, where they took a tour of all the new settlements of the second Aliyah and tried to do some outreach, the two rabbis together, two great rabbis together, Rav Chaim Zunnenfeld, Rav Kook was still the chief rabbi of Yafo at the time. Um, by the way, I just recently saw an interesting article by uh, Aaron Ben-Sian Shuren, the legendary journalist of the Forverts, and historian, and activist, and an incredible person. So in one of his uh, books, he writes an article about what language did they speak on these new ideological, socialist, Zionist, uh, Moshe, secular Moshe vote, where they drained the swamps in the second Aliyah. And he proves with all kinds of documentation that they spoke Yiddish because many of them did not know Hebrew yet. And even though there was this ideal to, to, to speak Hebrew, but when you're sitting in the middle of a swamp and you need the you need a, a tool and you want someone to pass it to you, you're not going to start searching for a Hebrew word that you barely know. You're just going to speak in your native tongue of Yiddish. And uh, therefore, at least the discussion, which I've seen uh, recently, is, is becoming more and more in the public sphere of the role of Yiddish in the Yishuv, the role of Yiddish in Zionism, the role of Yiddish in the establishment of the State of Israel. And it was seen until recently as, as uh, having uh, either, either a negative effect or zero effect. And really, the, uh, it's not the case. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the idea that their, their native tongue and their native culture and, and all that uh, baggage comes along with them and is uh, part of the, the, there in the early years. The founding of Tel Aviv uh, takes place during the second Aliyah, 1909. And uh, that brings us to the third Aliyah. third Aliyah is 1918 to 1923. Five years following World War I. Very, very ideological Aliyah. This is truly a Zionistic Aliyah. This is right after the Balfour Declaration. Now it's the British Mandate. There's no more Ottoman Empire. At this point, later on, they would be disillusioned with the British. But at this point, the British were seen as allies in the Zionist cause it's after the Russian Revolution, the Civil War, the pogroms, the massacres, once again part of a larger trend of immigration, Jewish immigration, general immigration, emigration. Still, there's unrestricted immigration to the United States at the outset, though the beginnings of restrictions commence at this time. Um, but the immigration to the United States reaches pre-World War I levels for one or two years following World War I, 1921, 1922. So the Third Aliyah can once again be seen within the greater context of Jewish immigration, with only a very, very small minority, a very, very small number actually immigrating to Palestine. The overwhelming majority are still going to the United States and other countries in the West. So until the economy stabilizes in Europe in 1923, so about 35,000 Jewish immigrants arrived during this time, mostly from Europe. It's known, there's an interesting story, it's known as the Mayflower of the... Uh, of the uh, as, as 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 if it were the Mayflower, like in in to Plymouth in in, in sixteen twenty. So this is the Jewish, uh, the Zionist Mayflower of the of the third Aliyah. It was a ship called the Roslin, and uh, and uh, they came it came at the end of uh, 
at the end of 1919, and they had a, had 700 passengers that left Odessa, which is the port that many uh, immigrated to uh, to uh, uh, the land of Israel. And it had not only was it such a large group coming from Odessa, coming from Russia, but also had a lot of famous personalities aboard, which which gave it in in, in history the, the the term the Mayflower that this was the pioneers of the third Aliyah. Yosef Klausner, the famous historian, uh, Rachel, the poetess, who was returning to the land of Israel. She had already been there before. Moshe Yosef Glickson, who is the future editor of Haaretz, and many, many others. There are future politicians, doctors, writers, educators, scientists. Uh, it's really, a, if you read the list of who was on this uh, ship, it's really a who's who of the future influential personalities of the Yishuv and later the state of Israel. The third Aliyah has a higher proportion of young secular singles, Hashomer Hatzair had been founded during World War I, uh, so the Zionist youth groups become more prominent, much more ideological and driven. In 1921, 50% of the Jewish immigrants to Palestine were young and single, which is an incredible statistic. Um, very diff- that already makes it different from most of the other Jewish immigration taking place at the time. They're ready to build, they're ready to work hard. These were what are referred to in history as the Chalutzim, the pioneers. They had a little bit of an easier time than the second Aliyah because it was the British mandate, it wasn't the Ottoman, and also a result of the fact that the second Aliyah had preceded them and was there to greet them. So the basic infrastructure of the new Yishuv was already in place. You have Joseph Trumpledore with the rise of Jewish self-defense and his, uh, um, uh, his uh, death in 1920. Um, there's the road building, draining malaria-ridden swamps, among other endeavors, of the Hebrew labor of the immigrants purchasing real estate, the founding of the socialist Histadrut Labor Workers Union, which provides health insurance for the first time, uh, uh, Jewish health insurance and banking, the rise of Tel Aviv as an urban center, the rise of kibbutzim, Ein Harod, and other uh, historic kibbutzim. And this is also the beginning of Jewish politics in the Yishuv under the organization of the British mandatory government, what's known as the Vad Umi and also the chief rabbinate, which are both established by the British government. And then this leads them into open friction with the old Yishuv. And this is the time where Jacob Dehan becomes the foreign minister, as it were, of the Eidah Haredis. And this is the, the attitude of the Eidah Haredis towards the membership of Knesset Yisrael, which is the established Jewish kehila recognized by the British government. And we come to the whole idea of, of the, which comes from Hungary, really, the, the idea of separation of the community, separation of the kehilas, and the friction between the religious and secular, and even within the religious community, of how much to be a part of the established uh, uh, rising new Yishuv community or not. All this starts and germinates during the third Aliyah. The fourth Aliyah is, uh, takes place from 1924 to through 1931, and it's known as the Grabski Aliyah. It's a funny name. He was the Polish Minister of Finance, Wladyslaw Grabski, whose questionable economic decisions had an adverse effect on the developing urban middle class of Poland, of whom a disproportionate amount, uh, disproportionate number, excuse me, were Jews, and therefore that goaded their emigration from the country. And some of them came to Palestine. So about 70,000 Jews arrived uh, during the fourth Aliyah, of whom about 20,000 leave a couple of years later, mostly from Poland, the Soviet Union, Romania, with some immigration from Iraq and other Islamic countries as well. The Polish Jews in the new Yishuv are very, it's a very bourgeois aliyah, very urban. The overwhelming majority of the immigrants settle in Tel Aviv, both religious and non-religious. They engage in commerce, much less, uh, much less uh, engage in agricultural work. 
there's lots of Hasidic, Hasidic Jews who arrive, especially Gera Hasidim and Polish Hasidim, uh, Sokolov and, and Koznitz and, 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 and the branches of, of, of Kuzmir and, 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 and all center of cent, cent, central Poland, those dynasties, many of them. And these are members, many of them are members of the Agudas Yisrael. Now the Eidah Haredis in the old Yishuv of Yerushalayim was also affiliated with the Agudas Yisrael political organization at the time. And this leads to a split in the Israel Agudas Yisrael because the Gerach Hasidim, who are established members of the new Yishuv in Tel Aviv, engaged in commerce, are ideologically different than the members of the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim still sustaining themselves on the Chalukah system and ideologically much, much more extreme. And they're both members of the same World Agudas Yisrael organization. And this leads to open friction and splits within the Agudas Yisrael. The Payale Agudas Yisrael story is in that context, which is another story which hopefully I'll get to one day. Um, but basically it's the economic misery in Poland and the economic opportunity in Palestine. It actually is a lot of, it's a booming economy in Palestine, at least in the first part of the fourth Aliyah. And this is also when the British mandate uh, still allows, uh, you know, a lot, you know, not, not unrestricted, but uh, it's before the severe restrictions on immigration, which would take place in the 1930s. Probably the primary factor in the fourth Aliyah was the passing of the Johnson-Reed Act in the U.S. Congress. That was the biggest uh, factor in the fourth Aliyah. In other words, the closing of the United States to large-scale immigration, that had the most profound impact on the fourth Aliyah, which is why I keep on basically being obsessed with the fact that the Aliyah to Palestine has to be constantly seen within the greater context of Jewish immigration at the time. Other countries such as South Africa, Canada, and Argentina saw a rise in Jewish immigration during the very same years as the fourth Aliyah. So there isn't a very convincing argument that the, that the immigration, Jewish immigration to Palestine should be viewed separately or differently, although it is undeniable that traditional connection to the land of Israel as well as the developing Zionist movement undoubtedly played a role as well, but it definitely ha- cannot be separated from the overall trends of Jewish immigration and the effect that the, that the basically the locking of the doors to the United States has. This has to be seen in the greater picture, and we can't view the Aliyah uh, separately as a separate story. The fifth Aliyah, the final one, is from 1932 and the 1939, and the biggest motivating factor for that is, of course, the rise of Hitler and the Nazi regime in Germany. Is the immigration of German Jews, approximately 60,000 estimated immigrated, though others give us a bit of a smaller number, out of a total of nearly a quarter of a million of the fifth Aliyah. In other words, the fifth Aliyah is in numbers, in, in just in actual numbers, is significantly larger. A quarter of a million Jews uh, immigrate to Palestine. Um, but uh, uh, since a quarter of them, uh, a quarter of this quarter of a million, about 60,000, uh, are German Jews uh, running away from Hitler, so it's very often referred to as the Yeki al- Aliyah. Many of them settle in Rechavia, by the way. This is the rise of Rechavia as an upscale German-speaking neighborhood. In that context, today it's, I think, still upscale, but I'm not sure if it's German-speaking anymore. Um, but either way, the Jewish agency strikes an amazing uh, deal with Nazi Germany about transporting currency and property of German Jews to Palestine. It was known as the Heskem Hahavara, or the Transfer Agreement, signed between the Jewish agency and the Nazi German government in August of 1933. This enabled Jews to take out their property in the form of German goods, benefited both sides because German goods, which was suffering from boycott around the world against the Nazi regime, now had places to sell German goods. And it also benefited the German Jews because they were able to take out uh, any German Jew who wanted to escape the Nazi regime in the 1930s. 
did so with the shirt on his back. They were not able to take out any of their their money with them, their property with them. And here, they were able to do so. And it also benefited the Yishuv, because this way they brought in uh, Jews with capital, not penniless refugees. So it benefited the economy of the Yishuv. So everyone benefited, but it did have its critics due to its being an economic agreement with Nazi Germany and entities such as American Jewry, were attempting to organize boycotts of the Nazi regime, and here they're making an economic uh, deal. So this agreement gave a huge boost to the economy in Palestine, which goaded further immigration. Ironically, it was one of the areas uh, not as affected by the Great Depression as a result. And in the late 1930s, while America was in the depths of uh, the Great Depression, the economy in, in Palestine was booming. Even some American Jews considered immigrating as a result. Uh, my grandfather, who considered immigrating at the time, he did not. Uh, he told me, though, that he grew up in Brownsville, and he was part of a Zionist youth group, and he was, he was a member, like, he, like his friends, he was, part of a, you know, he was a member of a working, poor, working-class family in Brownsville. And he and his friends used to sing a jingle during the years of the 1930s when they were kids. Um, I'm not going to sing it because I want you to enjoy the podcast, but I'll say the words... Uh, goodbye, America. Goodbye, Yankee fashion. We're off to Palestine, the heck with the depression. And that was a, a prevalent thought at the time. Um, it also benefited the issue by the fact that German intellectuals uh, and scientists who were fired from their positions in German universities not, uh, after the Nazis came to power, many of them were hired by the Technion in Haifa and by the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And this brought these universities to become actually prestigious universities, which they had been struggling to do up until that point. Um, despite the fact that it's known as the Yeki Aliyah, uh, German Jews only made up a quarter, uh, 25% approximately of the total. 40% came from Poland. There were some Greek Jews who came from Saloniki who built the Tel Aviv port and improved the Haifa port. Uh, there's a couple of eye-openers. About 2.5% of the Jewish immigrants to Palestine during the 5th Aliyah were from the United States. And even 1% who came from the Soviet Union, who were able to get out somehow. The Zionist establishment looked a bit askance at the members of the 5th Aliyah because it was they saw it as lacking in idealism. They saw them as lacking in nationalism. They saw them as lacking in socialism. It was also a very bourgeois and urban uh, uh, environment that they, had, they came to. And, and, and the German Jews especially even read literature and newspapers in their native uh, language. They didn't adapt uh, to Hebrew that quickly. What put an, uh, a damper on the Fifth Aliyah was the Great Arab Revolt. It slows down uh, immigration. The Great Arab Revolt breaks out in 1936. The Great Arab Revolt is against the British mandate, but it affects uh, the J British policy. The, the, the severe immigration restrictions are uh, implemented as a result, and, and eventually the White Paper, which basically is a draconian measure uh, on Jewish uh, 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 immigration to Palestine. So the Great Arab Revolt, coupled with the British uh, restrictions on immigration, um, and it, it, it leads to also illegal immigration begins at this point. But this wave of Aliyah ends uh, essentially with the beginning of the Second World War. As a result of the five Aliyahs, by the time the war breaks out, there is about 400,000 Jews living in Palestine. They're now, by now, they're close to a third of the local population, which is quite significant. Um, about 2.5% of the Jews, world, the world Jewish population now live in Palestine. Um, 400,000 Jews who live in the total land of Israel, in the total area of the British Mandate of Palestine, was a bit less than the amount of Jews living in Warsaw with the outbreak of the war, and about a fifth of the amount of Jews living in New York City at that time. 
So it's still very, very small, but as a result of these five waves of immigration, there is a, now a significant uh, amount. It continues. There are uh, illegal immigration during the war, after the war, the Hafalah, the Bricha, Aliyah Bet, and with the founding of the State of Israel, there's the beginning of mass immigration, which is also some great stories. But that is the story of the uh, summary, an overview of the five uh, Aliyot. This is Yehudi Geber with the Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.